You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. We see ourselves as artists first. Disability is a part of our artistry. It's a part of who we are. This is what I do. We're as important as any other artist. Walking is not the thing. Parking a little bit over so I can get out. The thing that is the hardest is rolling out into the world and having the judgments about that identity of disability imposed on you. It's why I'm so passionate about changing that narrative around disability that we are about life. Why should we stick in a cookie cutter, child friendly little box to make other people comfortable? in there of what they think disabled people should be. We're going to show the world that we are meant to be taken seriously. We have to do work that is not going to look hard, right? Think about that. We're going to have a rockin' good time. Love each other, love the audience, and one, two, three... First and foremost, we're actors, we're performers. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Reagan Linton and Brian Malone, the co-directors of the documentary film Imperfect, which plays at the Slamdance Film Festival coming up this week. The film is a documentary about a differently abled theater troupe out of Denver who are bringing together a production of Chicago. I highly recommend it. If you can, check it out via Slamdance. Passes are incredibly cheap, so you can watch everything online. And if you can't make that, take a look at imperfectfilm.com and find out where it is going to be playing near you. Enjoy the interview. I want to know a little bit more about the two of you. Can you tell me, Brian, what's your background? How did you get into filmmaking? I got into it from being a, a very haphazard musician. I was arguably the worst music student ever to to go to college. So I realized I needed to do something else. And I had this harebrained idea that I would get into television and film so that I could start selling all of my great music for music soundtracks. And I'm still waiting for that to happen. So I made a few few films in, in, in the meantime, but, but I'm available as a composer I'm not yet a decomposer, although some would argue. And Reagan, how about yourself? Tell me more about you and your career. I actually kind of started in childhood as a performer. And when I was going to college, I auditioned for a number of conservatories and didn't get into the ones that I wanted to go to. But I also applied to USC Film School and got in there. 
And so I started my college career in film and then through a variety of circumstances, including being paralyzed in a car accident, went a different direction and studied in a myriad of other things and kind of came back to performing. And then finally, circuitously came back to uh, filmmaking through uh, family and this opportunity with Brian to make this documentary. So it's been a long time coming, but this is my essentially my filmmaking debut on Imperfect and um, somehow found my way back after many years. And how did you two make a connection? We are both associated with a hospital in outside of Denver called Craig Hospital, which is a, um, a, a pretty well-known spinal cord and brain injury rehab hospital. And I do a lot of work for them, uh, a lot of educational work. And Reagan um, and I crossed paths at Craig um, and worked on a bunch of educational materials together and just getting to know her through through our work and and knowing what she did and just having a kind of a mutual interest in 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 being um, obsessive, obsessively productive. We both decided, hey, let's make a film. I'm always looking for good good stories, good fresh stories that are that are untold in making documentaries. And I had thought for you know a while that 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 um, there'd be a great film to be told around um a family theater company and and just great minds think alike. Reagan was thinking the same thing at the same time. And so we had a conversation and we decided we would want to do something. We didn't know exactly what it was, but we wanted to do something around family theater company. Cause we thought, you know, obviously it's a great, great story to be told. You know, family is a one of a kind company that there's no parallel to it across the country or really throughout the world. I mean, family is centered in Denver and um, we wanted to get the, the word out about not only what family does, but just about the, the lives and stories of disabled artists and, uh, and I think is because Brian and I both had a passion and awareness already through Craig around this community of folks that um, experience disability in a variety of ways. And but, you know, often their stories are not told and they're not told comprehensively, you know, in a kind of non-saccharine way a lot of the time. But um, so we wanted to we wanted to bring some some truth and some raw honesty to these stories to, to help humanize this community of folks with disabilities. Reagan, how long have you been working with the family group? I was paralyzed in a car accident when I was in college back in 2002. And uh, I was aware of family growing up. It's actually funny when, when there was still a Denver post um, section of, of uh, uh, auditions, they used to put the local theater auditions in, in the paper and I would go through and, in under families auditions, it would say, oh, you have to have a disability to submit. And when I was a kid, I grew up without a disability. Um, so I was always like, oh, bummer. I can't, I can't submit. So after I acquired my spinal cord injury, I thought, oh, I know this company that, that exists. And so a couple of years after my injury, I I heard they were having auditions for Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and um, I was terrified to go out and to kind of put myself out there as a person with a disability. But I got up the gumption, and I went and did it and started performing with them. And so now I've been performing with them for about 16 years, and um, they asked me about five years ago to come back and be artistic director. And uh, so I, I held that role for five years and just recently transitioned out of it. Now, how do you go about being both 
the director of the Chicago production, as well as directing this documentary, it feels like you're having to juggle quite a bit. And I imagine that you're having to rely on Brian for quite a bit of heavy lifting. That's how I did it. (laughs) Because um, while we were in the production and filming process, I was really focused on getting the the show up on stage. And so Brian and I would talk occasionally about like, you know, when we thought he should be in the room and um, making sure we were capturing the moments that, that felt like they might give us valuable material, which was really any part of the process. But uh, so it was hard to pick and choose, but he was really the one guiding the, the, the filming process, the cinematography. And then it was really after we were done with the, the filming that I came, came in and we worked more closely directly in cutting down all the footage and deciding, you know, what the story was really going to be and then guiding that, that story through. There's no way that we would have gotten everything that we got without Brian. Brian, how many cameras were you using at the same time? Because it feels like you're very fly on the wall and happen to capture a lot of very intimate moments. It was primarily one camera, um, although we have a second camera on a little gimbal, kind of a little floating handheld camera that I used for some of the more shots with movement and that kind of thing. But, but it was really primarily just, you know, one camera at a time. And it's just, it was just kind of a, a, a task of just being embedded with the the cast, getting to know them as people and getting to know kind of what the progress of the, of the show was with the rehearsals and, you know, what they were trying to accomplish. And then just kind of being present and aware of what was going on in the room. And I'm sure I'm not the only one, to tell you this, but like when you're making a film, uh, when you're on location or shooting a documentary, there's almost kind of like a, I'm going to say it's a sixth, sixth sense, but you become aware of the types of things of like what could happen. And so you're constantly kind of scanning the room to see what kind of activity is going on and where you might want to point the camera in the next moment or so, you know, and it might not be on whatever the central action in the room is, is, is going on. So what, after you get your shot set up and you're rolling and it's in focus, (laughs) then you're constantly kind of scanning the room and scanning to see what other things of interest are happening. And an occasion I would just, you know, leave a camera rolling and on a tripod static and then walk away and pick up the second camera and go find something else that I found of interest. It was very easy to collect 80 hours of footage over the process. So, so the real heavy lifting came, well, I'm not saying that there was a lot of heavy lifting in the shooting of it, but, but, but um, sifting through all of that footage, there's a lot, a little bit like panning for gold in a way, you know, there's a lot of good material there, but it was a lot of, investing the time really for weeks at a time, Reagan and I just kind of watching these clip reels independently, just watching all the raw footage like laid out from rehearsal on such and such a day, just watching the whole thing start to finish and making selects, making, making just kind of selecting moments that might have value to ultimately make up a scene. Now you've, shot documentaries before, but have you ever shot documentaries where your main cast, your your subjects 
are actors. I'm curious if that affects, do they put on an affectation being in front of a camera since they are already acting and being part of that acting world? I think everyone to a certain extent is aware when the camera is on them. And I think everyone would agree that people act differently when they are being videotaped or when they're shot or filmed or whatever. And a lot of times in more traditional docs, you know, you, you set up a sit down interview or something like that. And so they know that they're going there to be interviewed. You sit them down behind the lights and, and, and there's going to be a certain behavior that happens in front of the camera, or if something you're shooting an event or something like that, and they know the cameras are there, you know, people are going to behave a certain way. The way around that was, was honestly to get to know the cast, I think as well as I did by just being embedded with them, you know, not every single rehearsal, but many rehearsals. So they were familiar with me and they knew the cameras were there, but I'm not afraid to blend in the background, but then also help helpful. It's helpful for me to help disarm people and just not while the camera's rolling, or at least while they know it, you know, just to go talk to folks, go talk to people as humans and just try to get them to understand that you're a person just like them. Then I don't know if the camera tends to fade off into the background, but I think there were some moments where, where it did. And I think that's kind of where a lot of the magic can come from. One unique thing about folks with disabilities is that they, particularly something that is visible to the outside world, it often is a common experience that you you learn to experience voyeurism, right? That people are constantly looking at you, staring at you, whether you want that focus or not. Um, and so I think a lot of our, our actors, therefore, in a weird way, like even when they're acting, they have no choice but to show up as themselves, you know, and be who they are on stage and off. And so I think there's there's a weird connection there between just how they show up in the world and how they kind of become accustomed to people, uh, those voyeuristic tendencies, and and therefore, you know, kind of just being able to slide into the performance role or um, being the subjects like in this documentary. And again, like having no choice but to show up authentically as themselves with all of their accompanying identity. Reagan, even outside of the documentary, what were some of the most challenging things just directing the show? For anyone who's ever worked in theater, you know, it is a, it's a huge undertaking um, and particularly a musical production that has, you know, 25 plus people in it. Um, this particular show, you know, as, as we mentioned in the documentary, normally we have a, a strong relationship with the Denver Center for the Performing Arts in Denver. And that's usually where families performing. And uh, back in 2019, they were under renovation. So we had to move out to a different space. And so there was just a lot, there was a lot of logistics. Um, and then on top of that, with family in particular, you're adding all of the individual actors with their disabilities and their unique disability needs that often are very the same as any other actor, you know, and what they need to be successful. But sometimes like, as you see in the film, you know, we get into the, the space and it's providing a lot of acoustic challenges for many of our actors who are very sensitive to um, sensory input. The regular experience of a, a giant musical theater production, which is already overwhelming in itself, and then on top of that, you add some of these additional layers, which I, I think are just uniquely challenging, and hence why you see 
some of us, myself included, kind of falling apart a little bit throughout the process of the film. How long does it take to go from rehearsal all the way to final performance? You know, for family, uh, it's usually about two months of rehearsal and then about a month of um, production. Uh, It's a longer rehearsal process than than some rehearsal processes, um, mostly because you have unique, you, you know, you just need additional time, say, for an actor who has a traumatic brain injury to learn their lines or negotiating actors who use wheelchairs and safely negotiating around actors who are blind or low vision. Um, so all of that just takes a little bit of extra time. But often it's it's dependent on what you get in a theater. I mean, that's one of the challenges in general in the theater world now is that rehearsal time and preparation time just continues to be cut shorter and shorter because of budgets. And um, so often it, it's really kind of whatever time you're offered by the space or by your, by your funding that you have. We've all seen enough documentaries to realize that you can't focus on every single person in the cast. So there are very specific people that you say, okay, let's, let's see what their home life is like, or what is this journey to Denver and, and doing this whole thing? Or what is this person's past? You know, I can think of several actors that um, you focused on very particularly. When did you make that decision and how did you make that decision? This is going to be the person that we talk about. This is going to be the person we spend that extra time with. We covered everybody through auditions, through callbacks. Um, and so some people just started to emerge as, you know, people that maybe were going to be uh, in leads and in rehearsal a lot. But as you mentioned, what you don't see are the many interviews that um, and, and following other actors uh, for hours upon hours that unfortunately we just couldn't include. And um, I think just based on, and Brian can speak to this as well, based on, you know, some of the story arcs that we started to find that were shaping up and the experiences that, you know, he did capture in rehearsals that kind of helped to dictate where we would go. But, you know, all of these actors, this could be a 25 part documentary series, you know, um, because every single actor was so compelling and had so much in their lives to, you know, to share with audiences. The characters tend to reveal themselves through the process. Again, kind of being in the room and knowing what was happening with different people. We did follow certain people more than others just based on on their storylines and, and their their characters. And, um, you know, there were a lot of different things to, to keep in mind. Like um, we didn't want to necessarily just focus on just the main actors, the, 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 the top billing actors in the performance, in the play. You know, Adam, for instance, we didn't know what role he was going to get, if any. In fact, he originally wasn't cast. But, you know, that turned out to be a pretty valuable story, his contribution to the entire production and his storyline to the whole film, you know, and his life outside of the theater as well. So we thought, you know, we try to get a good cross-section of a lot of different folks. Once you are done and have that final edit, what's the life of the film after that? It's tough to tell because someone's always wanting something new. But I do feel like there's an evergreen quality about this film that in five years from now, would it be just as relevant? I'd like to think so. There's not much that's like necessarily dated about this film. I think these issues that the film kind of touches on underneath it, that's kind of tethered to, I think they're going to be here for a while. I think that this awareness of, of including people with disabilities 
as part of a larger conversation that this country is having about inclusivity and what does that mean in America. And um, I feel like that conversation is going to go on for a long time. And as long as that conversation goes on, I feel like this film has some relevance. When I was working at Family, we would get inquiries from as far as, you know, New Zealand and uh, all, all the way back to Kentucky to, you know, people with disabilities who had heard about this thing called Family and wanted to know more about it and wished that it was in their community because, you know, often those stigmas are still very real uh, for people with disabilities all over the world. You know, one in five people here in our country lives with a disability. And um, I think it's 1 billion worldwide lives with a disability. And that experience is all over the map. You know, we're really fortunate in the United States to have something like the ADA that affords uh, at least the idea of <laughs> equal participation and, and access. Folks in other places are not so lucky. And, but I think things don't start to change until you present a reality of full participation of people with disabilities, um, such as in, in this film. So I think it will not only be a motivator for, for folks with disabilities who live across the country or across the world who, through no fault of their own, maybe just are only receiving messages that are um, diminishing. And so it will help them to, to believe in their own possibility, as well as, you know, other non-disabled people and organizations and institutions to, to really think about what's possible. I mean, that's always been at the heart of what family does, is imagining the possibilities um, that become very real if just given the focus and the and the resources. And so hopefully that's, you know, how this film will continue to resonate, yeah, for decades to come. You know, there's a place for activism. There's a place for kind of in-your-face issues. and But there's also a place for kind of kinder, softer, more human stories that actually, to me, have as much value um, as some some of the more activist stories, I guess you, you could say. We were talking about Crip Camp a little earlier today, which you know chronicles the creation of the ADA in a lot of ways. And that film is fabulous. We think it should have won an Oscar last year, but it still opened a door for a film like this because now. I'm not trying to compare ourselves to Crip Camp, but you know, you think about in a way function out functionally, Crip Camp opened a door and now it allows a film like ours to be seen in a different light, maybe on a different stage that says, you know, okay, people with disabilities have rights now. What can you do with those rights? Well, this film is like a, uh, I think a great illustration and demonstration of like the real capacity of any human being and especially in this case, those folks with disabilities. I know you're playing Slam Dance pretty soon. And then after that, what, Santa Fe? And then where are you off to after that? We're off to a lot of different places that we can't necessarily say right now. But if you uh, go to imperfectfilm.com, we'll be keeping all the um, updates on there. But yeah, it's it's been pretty exciting to see uh, the interest that's coming from places all over the country and even all over the world. So there's much more to come for Imperfect. Reagan, Brian, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you. Nice talking to you too. Thank you, Mike.
If someone stood up in a crowd and raised his voice up way out loud and waved his arm and shook his leg, you'd notice some. If someone in the movie show yelled, Fire! In the second row! This whole place is a powder keg! You'd notice some. And even without clucking like a hen, everyone gets noticed now and then. Unless, of course, that personage should be invisible, inconsequential. Me. Cellophane, Mr. Cellophane, should I bend my name, Mr. Cellophane, cause you can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know. Suppose you was a little cat residing in a person's flat who fed you fish and scratched your ears. You'd notice them. Suppose you was a woman wed and sleeping in a double bed beside one man for seven years. You'd notice him. A human being's made of more than air. With all that bulk, you're bound to see him there. Unless that human being next to you is unimpressive, undistinguished, you know who. Should I bend my name, Mr. Cellophane? Cause you can look. I haven't taken up too much of your time. <laughs>